All right, so you're ready to start? We should get started with this. Okay, so last this will be the last one I do on hell. This is the most time I've spent on the subject of hell my entire life. So, yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so Lord, thank you for who you are. We just thank you for your blessing and your truth. Just to ask you to anoint this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're talking about the subject of hell, <clears throat> and I've been opening uh, all of the teachings with, uh, oh, what happened here? Yeah, here we go. I've been opening all of the teachings with just some, like, some practical thinking about stuff, because I think critical thinking and asking questions and even a certain amount of skepticism is is important. And I think one of the best questions that you can ask is, how do you know what you know? <laughs> because when I started doing that, how do I know what I know? I began to realize that a lot of what I believed, I believed simply because it had been repeated. <laughs> and it's interesting to think about who was the first person to say this? Why did it catch on? And then if it gets sort of into the collective consciousness of a group, then it just gets repeated and you're in an environment where uh, everybody believes it and it just gives it more credibility, right? But if you don't know where it came from, then sometimes these ideas just hang out there like they're almost God in and of themselves, if that makes sense, right? So sometimes doing some critical thinking about things that we've been taught can help you get out of limited thinking or limited perceptions or, frankly, let go of a lie that you've believed so that you can embrace the truth, right? So I want to give this to you. I thought this was interesting. Um, there's a uh, Christian scholar from the 1800s who writes and says this. He says, uh, Classic scholars know that the heathen hell was early copied by the Catholic Church. The heathen writers declare that the doctrine was invented to awe and control the multitude. Polybius writes, quote, Since the multitude is ever fickle, there is no other way to keep them in order but by fear of the invisible world. Hansen, the scholar, uh, terms this intentional falsification, quote, the corruption of Christianity. Now, that's the Latin stream of the early church. Now, it's interesting to note, and I had somebody message me that listened to last week's because I mentioned this, there are considered by historians to be six main theological schools that came out of Christianity within the first 300 years. Of those six, four of them were universalists. And I don't remember what the fifth one was, what they believed or taught right off the top of my head, but it was only the Latin stream, which we inherited in the West through the Catholic Church, through the Protestant Reformation, through the Puritans, and then the Evangelicals and the Charismatics, all that stuff. Only the Latin stream taught hell as a place of eternal conscious torment. So I want to preface this next statement because he goes on and says, regarding the source of this doctrine... And the two facts that the Old Testament does not contain it and that it already existed as a pagan doctrine, Hansen, the scholar, appropriately asks, quote, 
how can it be supposed that the Latins were correct in claiming that the Greek scriptures teach a doctrine that the Greeks themselves did not find therein? And how can the Greek fathers in the primitive church mistake when they understand our Lord and his disciples to teach universal salvation or universal restoration, sorry, universal restoration? So do you get do you get what he's saying there? So let's do it like this. Uh, if one of the books that I've read is by Thomas Thayer, it's called The Origin of the Doctrine of Eternal Conscious Torment. I think is what it's called. And he says that of the church fathers, really, uh, and this was a Latin church father named Tertullian. He's the first one to begin to talk about this place of torment and elaborate on it. And he really has this kind of heart Tertullian does where he's like thinking about his enemies that are coming against him. He mentions some of them even by name and talks about how much glee and joy he's going to have being up in heaven and watching them in the torments of hell, right? But if you look at the early creeds of the church, if you look at the Nicene Creed, if you look at the Apostles' Creed, if you look at any of the councils of the early church, hell as a place of torment or any idea of torment in the afterlife is left completely out of the creeds. So in other words, when they established the the creed at the Council of Nicaea, they said this is what a Christian believes. If you believe these things, you're a Christian. If you don't believe these things, you're not. So we believe in God the Father, uh, maker of heaven and earth, right? Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, the Holy Spirit, all that stuff. But there's no mention at all of having to believe in hell or having to believe in eternal conscious torment. So we can establish that wasn't a cardinal teaching or a main teaching or even considered to be heretical which way you believed one way or the other whether you were a universalist or you believed in restoration or you believed that people would be annihilated at the end that didn't believe or whether you believed in eternal conscious torment it wasn't something that they were fighting over you get it so it wasn't until augustine shows up on the scene that hell really becomes um used and incorporated into the consciousness of the church in the West. The reason that's important is because Augustine did not speak or read Greek. So he used the Latin translation, and we know now what Augustine didn't know then, and I'll show you one tonight, that there were a lot of mistranslations between the Greek the Greek text and the Latin text. Got it? So some of his errors just come out of that. So what this guy is saying, what this scholar in the 1800s was saying, is that it's only the Latin stream that believes in hell as a place of eternal conscious torment, and they're using the Latin translations. But the Alexandrian stream, which is the Greek stream of the church, right, that read the actual language, don't have any such teaching anywhere in their books or doctrines or whatever. Make sense? So the point he's making is, how did the Greeks not have it <laughs> when they're reading it in their own language? Does that make sense? So it wasn't part of the Old Testament teaching, part of the teaching of the Old Testament, and it wasn't in the, the original Greek manuscripts. Things got mistranslated like we've been looking at. The word hell, there's three or four different words. Uh, what we look at? Three different words in the New Testament that get translated as hell, and they're not even talking about the same thing. 
And then what's worse, there are places in our English Bibles where words are translated as hell in certain texts or passages, but then they're translated as the grave or de- or something completely different in another passage. And if you translate it, we looked at this last week, if you translate it as hell all the way across the board, then you get some interesting <laughs> You get some really interesting concepts like Jacob going to hell or Job desiring to be in hell or David longing to be in hell. We looked at that last week, right? Make sense? So because we're working with translations of translations, right? And because they're not consistent always in translating every word the same every time it's used, then it lends itself a little bit to some confusion for us, right? Okay. Oh, I need my notes. So we're going to look at uh, some. We we did all the hell words. <laughs> That's so funny tonight. We were talking, and uh, Elijah came across, I don't know how, on his little Pac-Man game or something he's playing, or word game. He comes across the word ass. And so he's showing it to us, and he's laughing. And so Julie says, well, you know, that's another name for a donkey. And so Josiah just ran away with that. I don't even remember some of the things he said. But so he starts out, he says, So, Dad, does that mean that if there's a hole in the donkey's leg, that you would call it a... (laughs) And he just kept coming up with little quirky stuff. And... And absolutely nothing to do with this message, and it won't be edited out. So let's look at so let's look at some that talk about that seem to indicate perhaps that eternal conscious torment, even though they don't use the word hell, that might seem to lend itself to teaching eternal conscious torment. So we want to do a fair overview of this stuff. So Matthew chapter twenty-five. We have once again a parable where the Son of Man comes to judge the nation, starting in verse 31. And I don't want to read the whole parable because I got other stuff I want to get into tonight. But you know the story where he divides the sheep and the goats, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. He says he divides the nations as a shepherd divides the sheep and the goats. He doesn't say he divides the individuals. So this parable is already talking about national judgment, not individual judgment. Because remember, national judgment is a big theme, particularly in the prophets. They're always speaking of God's judgment on various different nations, even upon Israel, even upon Judah, right? And we've looked at that. So Jesus is speaking here a parable about the separating of the nations and and national judgment, not individual judgment. So that's the first problem we have with the way that some of our friends have, have read and interpreted this and the way that we probably have read and interpreted this before. Yes? So that's the first thing. So he gathers them and he, he says to the sheep, he says, uh, he says, when when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was sick, you came to me, right? And they're, they're, they're confused. They don't even know when they did that. They're like, Lord, when? When did that happen? And he says, anytime you did this to another human being, anytime you did this to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me, right? And then he turns to the other nation group, 
and says, you know, the exact opposite. He says, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. When I was in prison, you didn't come visit me. And he says, uh, and they're like, when? You know, when did we do this? He said, you didn't do this. You did. You didn't. So the sheep go into the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. And the goats go then. Let's see what how it says it here. Um, and these, the goats, the ones who didn't show that kind of generosity and compassion, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So that seems to kind of just undo, like maybe we should have just done this one first, because that seems to undo some of what we've been saying the last three weeks, at least on face value, right? First thing, just to remind you, again, I want to stress this, right? There's no mention of the word hell in there, first of all. So we're already making a mistake because we've looked at all the words that talk that, that are translated as hell. We make a mistake, I think, if we just project hell onto that verse. That's the first thing. The second thing is, again, this is a parable. So not to just keep repeating myself, but a parable is not a parable if it is not a story. <laughs> if it actually happened, it's history. It's not, a, it's not parabolic, right? So it's a story that is intended to illustrate a moral or a spiritual truth. So it is not intended necessarily to teach metaphysics to teach the nature of reality outside of this physical material world. It's not a philosophical statement. It's not trying to teach about the reality and the nature of things. It is a story that we looked at this last week that's, that's designed in some, in some instances to lead the reader to a truth and in other instances to shock the reader or the listener into a truth. So have you ever, have you ever watched something uh, on TV or a movie or a play or any kind of uh, read a, a story, a fictional story that just really impacted you at a deep level and and your life changed. Like I can think of a number of you know instances, different movies, whatever that I watched that spoke to me so profoundly that I lived differently after I watched the movie. Like The Matrix, for example. How many times back in the early 90s was I using The Matrix as a metaphor for spirituality and spiritual things, right? That movie impacted me deeply and, and, and changed my life. You get it? So it doesn't have to be literally true to have value and impact in your life or even to be inspired, right? So we know a parable is not literally true. We know that it's teaching a moral and a spiritual principle. So again, what is the moral and spiritual principle that Jesus is really trying to get at? And it seems pretty plain and simple, right? Because again, I think he's dealing perhaps with a culture and a people who think they have it all right because they have all the doctrines right or they have their I's dotted and their T's crossed or they're from the right... Uh, Stock, they have the right genealogy, they're Jewish, whatever, uh, whatever the case may be, right? And so we, we have all these things that kind of build up our, so to speak, our spiritual pedigree. 
that makes us think, wow, we're really feasting at the, at the table of God, right? So like the rich man, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he's talking to people who, uh, using, I think, the spiritual metaphor of you think you're really sitting down at the table of the kingdom and, and eating, and you think these Gentiles over here and these people over here are just feasting on the crumbs, and then he reverses it and says, you know, you got this guy burning <laughs> in torment, and you got this guy in Abraham's bosom. That's a shock to the, the the culture that Jesus is speaking to. Does that make sense? And so I think he's doing kind of the same thing here, because again, the, the, the way they're thinking about the nations is, is you know, God's going to come and he's going to wipe out. I mean, there's lots of stuff in the Psalms about God coming and, and wiping out, you know, the Gentile nations and, and his name being praised because that was the context in which they understood their relationship with God at that time. Does that make sense? And so Jesus is challenging some of these things. And so I think what he's trying to say is, look, it's not about having a religious pedigree. It's not about how much you know. It's, it's about what's happened that's transformed your heart. Like, cause here's the thing. The people did not know they were doing the good works. So they weren't doing it from a motivation of self-preservation. See, if, okay, let's do it this way. Let's just back up. The answer to get out of hell, according to this, is not that you prayed the sinner's prayer. has nothing to do with it. It used to bother me under the old model of salvation because, you know, I was just neurotic as heck when I when I first came into stuff and I wanted to make sure I got saved and I wasn't sure I did it right because I didn't, you know, I'd hear all these testimonies about people who prayed the prayer and their life was totally transformed and I prayed the prayer because I really wanted God and nothing happened. And I was living the same the next day as I was living the day before, right? And I get so frustrated. Like, how does a person get born again? And then people, you ever get more discouraged when you hear a testimony than, than, than encouraged? Because people stand up and they testify about what their experience is, and you're thinking, dang, that's not my experience. You know, people testify about their, their high-level spiritual experiences or whatever, and you're like, I haven't felt the presence of God in months. <laughs> Anybody else been there? You know? I got healed, but you're sitting there thinking, well, how come I didn't get healed? Got it? So I would hear all these these people, you know, talk about how their lives were transformed. We go, of course, this is back in the day, you know, because I mean, you guys know like um, uh, Nikki Cruz and David Wilkerson and, you know, all those guys came through the Assembly of God churches here and I'd go hear their testimonies going from gang violence and murdering and all this stuff to now they're preaching and their hearts are changed because they prayed this prayer and I'm thinking, ugh. You know, I, I don't feel different. So how do I know I'm saved? So every time I'd watch the 700 Club, I, and I'm, I'm not even kidding, every time I'd watch the 700 Club and Pat Robertson would pray that prayer, if you if you die tonight and you don't know where you're going, and, and pray this prayer, I would I would pray the prayer because I wanted to make sure I was in. And I even got rebaptized. I baptized in Methodist, but I was sprinkled. So I thought maybe that doesn't cut it. So I got baptized. I got dunked. So, you know, make sure we got it. Then I had somebody tell me, well... I know, you guys hear this stuff all the time. You, you can't get baptized backwards, but this is how crazy religious people make it. You can't get baptized backwards because you don't fall back into the kingdom. You, you backslide, you don't fall back into the kingdom. So you gotta go forward because that means you're making a conscious decision to go forward. And, and then there was a group that said, no, you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus only. And another group that says, no, you have to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so finally one time I just baptized myself. I sprinkled myself. I did it front, backwards, in the swimming pool, forwards, flip turn, 
in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. Hoping that would take. And I'm being a little, I'm, I'm joking, I didn't really do that. But I'm, I'm trying to make fun of some of the stuff that we do, right? So we say, just pray a prayer and boom, you're in. And it used to bother me when I, when I would try to get the assurance of my salvation. Then they'd say, just take it by faith, brother. Just the word of God says that you're saved and you just got to believe it because the word of God says it. And that was good advice for me, actually, because I had something to anchor my faith on and say, okay, I'm just going to believe it. I'm just going to believe it. I'm, you know, that I'm saved because it says right here in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, right? So I would stand on that and then I'd come to this passage in Matthew and I think, dang, maybe not. Maybe not. I remember I did prison ministry for a while and I'm, I'm getting the training to go into the prisons and uh, I didn't do it very long. And uh, they asked, what are the reasons at the training? What are the reasons that you want to get into this? And when they got to me, I said, I want to be one of the sheep. <laughs> and it's on the list. <laughs> But see, here's the problem. Jesus wasn't giving us a formula for salvation. See, you can look at this as a formula for salvation and say, wow, if I want to escape the, 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 the pit, the, you know, the everlasting torment, whatever it is, then I've got to do these things. I've got to make sure I'm going to the hospital. I've got to make sure I'm going to prison ministry. I need to be given to the poor and all those things. Those are good things to do. But if you're doing them as a formula for salvation, you're missing the entire point of the story because the, na- the, the, when, when the people stand before the Lord, and they say, you know, when did we do these things? They're like completely clueless. When did we do these things? So I think the point of the parable is not some kind of works-based salvation, if you will, as much as it is you've got to let something impact you on the inside and you've got to let something that transforms your heart so that you're not thinking about, gosh, i got to do this for myself, but you're, you're understanding our connection. And man, does the idea of Christ being inside every human being make this parable make so much more sense and that when and that we're all connected and so that in many ways when you do something for someone else you're doing it for yourself and when you do something against someone else you're doing it against yourself right so when you when you begin to look at the world through that lens all of a sudden the christian ethic begins to make so much more sense than it did before because it's not works it's 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 the byproduct of a way of seeing God and encountering God and a way of seeing human beings and encountering human beings that transforms your entire consciousness, your heart, and your life that I think is the main point of the of the parable. You get it? But let's just suppose for a minute that Jesus was trying to teach salvation here. Now, if he is, you're in big trouble because this isn't just... Well, you may not be in big trouble, but I'm just saying we've got to change our message because our message is repent, confess, believe, whatever. And if that's the key, this is one of the only verses that talks about everlasting punishment. We ought to listen to what Jesus said about how to get out. It's just like in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus where I said, you know, Jesus didn't say anything about believing in him was the reason that this man's in torment and this man's in Abraham's bosom. He says the reason is you were comforted. Yeah, yeah you, you were comforted in this life and he received his torment. So now it's flipped. So how do we cherry pick these little parts and say, OK, this teaches hell. But then we, we don't address what Jesus said was the answer. 
Again, I'm going to keep reiterating it because I want you to see how ridiculous it is, the, gym, the spiritual gymnastics that we do to try to get someplace with stuff. Because I know a lot of us have been programmed to that old uh, kind of thinking, right? Where it talks about uh, unquenchable, unquenchable fire, where it talks about hell, Gehenna is the Greek word. And it's talking about a literal physical place in Jerusalem at the time. But regardless, when it's talking about hell being a place that burns where the fire does not quench and the worm does not die, again, Jesus gives the answer, not say the sinner's prayer, cut off your arm. Pluck out your eye. Because he says, if your arm offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than to go to Gehenna, than to be thrown body and soul in Gehenna, where the fire does not go out and the worm does not die. And so nobody's encouraging you to maim yourself to get to heaven. He's probably not talking about the afterlife, because if he is, then there are going to be a lot of people in heaven that you know are going to be disappointed because they're going to be maimed people and half-blind people in heaven. See it? Because he says it's better for you to enter life maimed. See it? So we said, well, no, no, he's not speaking literally there. He's speaking metaphorically. But then we jump down to the next verse. We say, oh, but that fire, brother, it's it's literal. <laughs> right? It's funny, isn't it? All right, but let's look at these words. All right. So, um, well, we'll come back to this. So let's let's go to First Thessalonians. This is another one. Second Thessalonians. This is another one. You guys doing all right? I know this isn't like, you know, the most motivational stuff in the world. But where is Thessalonians? It's it's after popcorn, I know. I don't even have time to explain that comment. Okay. So we'll start in verse 6. It says... Uh, Chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified with his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because of our testimony among you was received. That's pretty rough. (laughs) Right? I mean, there it is right there. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Those that do not believe or do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there it is. Everlasting destruction, right? They'll be punished with everlasting. That sounds, how many of you think, maybe that sounds a little bit like eternal conscious torment, right? Yeah, I did too. Um, and honestly, this this is a difficult passage. This is one of these where it's like you, you really got to make sure you haven't made up your mind ahead of time if you want to know what the Bible says about these things. You got to make sure you haven't made up your mind ahead of time and then try to make the verse fit 
what you want it to fit, right? So this is one of those things when I was doing this study that I really had to engage honestly and look at and still when it comes to what does the Bible teach about this idea of eternal conscious torment still gives me trouble, right? But here's the thing. It actually doesn't teach eternal conscious torment or even eternal punishment, even in the English. We'll look at some of the stuff from the Greek in it in a minute. But look what it says here. It says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. He did not say, These shall be destroyed with everlasting punishment. In other words, the punishment is a destruction that lasts forever. You see it? Let me read it again. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Doesn't say everlasting torment. How can, if something's destroyed, how can it be an ongoing process? Do you see it? So it's not the, is it making sense? It's, it's basically saying, They'll be destroyed forever. And so people who believe in annihilationism, that's another theory that people have about what happens based, or based on scriptures. What happens to us after we die is that the people who don't, don't believe in Jesus and don't, they're just annihilated. They're just destroyed forever. So this could potentially be teaching that, but it certainly, most definitely, is not teaching everlasting torment. It's teaching the opposite of that. <laughs> I mean, think about this. All right, let's do it this way. Have you, so like one of the things that, um, uh, has been interesting for me, because I'm interested in human behavior and the psyche and, and that kind of stuff. And so one of the things like I'll see, you'll see on Netflix right now, they've got stuff, um, about, uh, uh, the mind of a serial killer and, and all that kind of stuff, right? <clears throat> and, uh, there's a, a, good series on Netflix right now called Mind Hunters that I read the book. Um, the book was written by the FBI agents who developed the, uh, uh, what do you call that? Psychological profiling department for the FBI. They didn't always do that. And so Criminal Minds, if you've seen that show, that's, you know, th- these are the guys that developed that. So it's, it's their autobiographies. And so they've taken that and they've turned it into like a 14, uh, Series, what do, what do they call those episodes? A 14 episode series on Netflix called Mindhunters. And there are some really sick and twisted individuals out there that have done some really horrible stuff. And one of the worst things that like, think about someone who takes someone against their will, right? Holds them in captivity and then devises torture and devises ways to keep reviving their victim so they can keep torturing their victim. So this is a person who has certain access to medicines or certain uh, techniques. They've studied out those medical techniques, and they know exactly how to inflict just the right amount of pain. And then when the person passes out from pain, they give them a drug that makes them wake up so that they can still feel the pain. Well, what, what do you think of that person? Terrible, right? Sadistic, right? Like, sick, like, how could that even enter anyone's mind? But do you realize that is what we say is in the mind and the heart of God? 
for the vast majority of humanity? That's what we say as Christians? Think about that. As long as it's, you know, as long as it's, who's the BTK guy? What was his name? Do you remember? Um, I have to ask my niece because I think she had dinner with him. <laughs> her, her grandparents knew him. <laughs> but anyway, you know, they called him BTK because it was buying, torture, kill. You know, so we think these are the sickest people in our society and we study them and we want to understand uh, how they think and why they do what they do in hopes that we can find a cure. I, I think one of the serial killers, that might have been Ted Bundy, said, "Is, is uh, can you find a cure for me? When, when the FBI was starting to study him, are you, are you looking for a cure? <laughs> right? And yet we're saying this is the mind of God and this is the heart of God and not just for a select few, but for the vast majority of humanity because they don't believe like us. Does that make sense? I mean, think about how grotesque an image of God that is. Right? So this is not saying keep them alive forever and keep torturing them. Right? So you ask, um, here's what I think he's talking about. I'm just going to be honest with you. I think Paul grows and develops. Because Thessalonians are the first letters that he writes. And when Paul gets converted, if you if you look in the book of Acts, when Paul gets converted, and there's been some great scholarship by uh, N.T. Wright and others that talk about what the nature and the mindset probably of, of Paul, uh, because he calls himself a zealot, and a zealot was a term for a second temple Jew who was basically a warmonger. They had violence and anger already. It was very much a part. And if you look at Paul writing in Timothy, he says that he was a violent and insolent man. So here you have this violent, insolent guy who's going to war. You have these Christians, so he's, he's right there to lead the charge, to, to, to kill him, to drag him into prison, take him out of their homes, whatever. So you see that kind of mean-spirited nature inside of Paul, right? So he's writing, and then he gets converted, and they try to contain him. But he's so zealous for the Lord after his encounter that he's, you know, even the disciples are saying, we need to contain this guy, and he's sneaking out, and he's going, you know, you remember Agabus says, don't go to Rome and, 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 and preach, and he's like, I will die for my faith. Not only will I be bound, but I will die for my faith. So, you know, he's just, and we got to let these guys be human. I mean, he's not Jesus, Right? So he's writing Thessalonians. This is, scholars tell us, this is the first letter that Paul writes. And he writes it prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. He writes books, if you, like the book of Colossians, the book of Ephesians. He's writing those towards the end of his life. First and second Timothy, towards the end of his life. And you notice his language and his tone, everything changes. Read Thessalonians and then go read Ephesians and see if you don't see spiritual growth and, and maturation. Oh, but brother, this is the this is the word of God dripping off the tongue of God. I seriously doubt that Paul, who's writing a letter to, Thessal, to the Thessalonians, has any idea that a that a that a, that a church synod four centuries later is going to decide that it's the inspired word of God. I seriously doubt that. So I think that what we're seeing reflected here is that, yeah, I think this is how Paul really thought about God. But here's the other thing that I think possibly. Because he's writing before the destruction of Jerusalem 
and the temple. And because the enemies that he's citing specifically in Thessalonians at this point in time in the development of the church is not, it is not the Romans. It is the religious zealots like him that were coming out of Judaism. Right? And I think he's probably using, when he talks about that day and he talks about the Lord coming and flaming vengeance, and you have to get my series on Matthew 24 and the end times and all that, where the prophets use apocalyptic language to describe national judgment. For example, I think it's Isaiah 13 talks about one of the nations. I think it was Edom. And it says that uh, one of the nations, God was going to come in judgment against them and that the sun would be turned to blood. Uh, darkened and the moon would be turned to blood and the stars would fall from the sky, right? Same kind of language that Jesus uses to describe the end of the age and the end of the the temple system and the old covenant system, not the end of the world. So for you, if you're in a if you're if you were in 9/11, if you were in the in the towers, one of the towers in 9/11, your sun and moon and stars went out. Plain and simple. And you went to Hades, which means the, above, the the hidden place, right? You get it? So I think Paul is using that same kind of language to talk about the total destruction of the temple system. And that that destruction would be everlasting. Hold your question to the end if you don't mind, Jared. Thanks. Yeah. Make sense? But you can decide for yourself what you want. But clearly it still doesn't teach that. Now, let's also look at this word eternal because this is where I'm trying to get to and I'm taking too long. The word that is used for eternal in the Greek or everlasting in both these passages and in fact all seven passages that are connected with punishment or torment or whatever where the word is everlasting actually doesn't even mean everlasting. (laughs) It's a bad translation. It's a Greek word, aeonios, and it comes from the Greek word aeon, or eon, where we get, it means, so this is a noun, just to make it clear, this is a noun, and this is an adjective. This means an age or allotted period of time. It specifically means a time that has a beginning and a specific end. Isn't that interesting? Now you cannot make, when you have a noun that becomes an adjective, you can't make the adjective trump the meaning of the noun. Here's what I mean. Hourly can never mean yearly. See, hours the noun, right? So an hour is what? 60 minutes. So if we talk about something being hourly, then we're talking about specific broken down periods of hours. Right? So the meaning is found in the noun, not in the adjective. 
So you can't say, well, it just means, it just means everlasting because it's a different word. No, it comes from this and it means a specific time period that is allotted that is predetermined. So actually everlasting there is a completely mistranslated word. In both those passages. And here's why. Because ancient cultures, so linguists say that these ancient cultures had not yet developed a concept for eternity like we think about it. You cannot find a single Greek word (laughs) that actually translates to mean a period of time that never ends from that classical Greek period. Which is why the Alexandrian Christians didn't have any concept of eternal torment because they're reading it in their own language. Are you doing all right? When it gets translated into the Latin, this, aeonios, gets, or however you say it, gets translated in the Latin to eternus, Eternus. What does that sound like? Eternity. It's where we get the word eternity, and it did mean everlasting. It did mean eternal. So we want to be hard on Augustine, but when Augustine's reading the Bible, we talked about this with the original sin when we went over it. He had a bad translation from Romans chapter 5, but when he's talking about hell, he's reading from a, a mistranslation from the Greek to the Latin, which is why... I think one of the main reasons it was only the Latin stream that carried on that teaching. Isn't that interesting? Now here's the other thing. The, the word, that, so, so let's just look at, um, nah, I don't want to have to take time to do that. The word for punishment, I'm going to skip, I'm talking to myself in the notes. The word for punishment in Matthew 25 where we read, Is K-O-L-A-S-I-S, if you transliterate it to English. And it, it also comes from a word that means to prune, like a, a plant, or Jesus talks about pruning the branches, right? And when Jesus says that, you know, the Father prunes the branches. Why does He prune them? Does He prune them to destroy them? Every branch in me that bears fruit, He prunes that it might what? Produce more fruit, right? Got it? It means beneficial disciplinary correction. So in other words, it means to punish like a parent would punish a child for the purpose of training and teaching and correcting. Yeah. That's actually the word that's used there. There's a different word in the Greek that's used for retributive justice or retributive punishment, which is revenge. This is not the word, so you you get it? So there's a word in the Greek that would speak to just getting revenge. (laughs) This word speaks to a punishment that is designed to train and raise and improve the person, to teach them. So really what the Bible teaches is not eternal conscious torment, 
it teaches punishment for the purpose of training and teaching and correcting that is only for an allotted period of time. Which one sounds more like the heart of God? But see, that's why I can look. I can stand congruently and I can tell anybody. I can look in the camera. (laughs) I can tell anybody. I do not believe in eternal conscious torment partly because the Bible absolutely does not teach it. I am fully confident that there is nowhere in the Bible that it teaches eternal conscious torment. And according to some of the classical scholars... It was an idea that was made up by the Catholic Church in order to control the masses. We looked at that, right? I read those quotes at the beginning, right? All right. Let's look at this last one and we'll be, we'll be done and we can do questions. Um, the, the Lake of Fire. <laughs> Revelation. See if I can find the verse here. Revelation 14. It talks about this. Or not. I have the wrong reference. Here we go. Verse 10. And he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So there's one, right? Got it? Now, first, I heard, first of all, that hell was separation from the presence of God. But this actually says he'll be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will ascend forever and ever. Right? Pretty rough. And then, of course, we know at the end, without giving you the reference, it's at the end of the book, you know it, that death and Hades will be cast into the Lake of fire, right? And all those who names, whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Now it's interesting that Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. So one of your words for hell is, <laughs> so death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is not hell, or what we refer to as hell is not the lake of fire. Make sense? Am I going too fast for you? All right. The other thing I want you to notice, again, I said this, but it's in the presence of. Now, let's break down these words, all right? So, they're cast into a lake of fire and brimstone where they will be tormented. So, the word for fire in Revelation Per, and it's where we get our English word, purify. B- 
brimstone. Is I should just take these up there, huh? Gosh, I've done this for how many weeks now, and I just figured out that would be a good idea instead of going back and forth. I'm giving my exercise that way, though. Right, Theon. Everybody, just say Theon. Right, and then torment. Bazanizo. All right, so we already looked at fire is where we get our English word purify. Theon, what does that sound like? Theo. Yeah, actually the Greek word, one of them, theos, or theology, is for the study of what? God. So it actually has divine in the word there, or God in the word there. And torment, this word, has absolutely nothing. It, does, it doesn't even mean torment. <laughs> it drives me crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's no wonder we believe this stuff, and it's no wonder we've preached this stuff. But again, if we're talking about eternal conscious torment, the Greek word there that gets translated from the Greek to the English as torment does not mean torment. <laughs> It does not mean ton of punishment at all. It means a touchstone. And it's a term that was used in, for testing the authenticity of a metal. So they would have certain, usually a black stone that they could use and they could take precious metals and they could run it across the stone and it would be hard enough that part of the precious metal would come off on the stone and it would leave a certain color on the stone and they could tell by the color whether or not the precious metal was authentic or whether or not it was fake. So that's the first one. Theon, this does not mean brimstone. It actually literally translates to divine incense. Now, it was believed that burning divine incense was regarded as having the power to purify and to ward off diseases. Totally changes the meaning, doesn't it? Just doing that little bit. Now, if you understand fire in the Bible, let's look at a few places and we'll be done. Daniel 11.5. Daniel 11.35, I was like, wow, that's not the right verse. What was I thinking there? (laughs) Daniel 35, 11.35, And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, to purify them, and to make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for an appointed time. The reason I'm bringing this out, to refine them and to purify them, the word for purify there actually means... To burn with fire. It gets translated 
purify into the English, but the original word means to burn with fire. So watch how it reads. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, burn them with fire, and make them white until the time of the end. It's not something that has the goal of punishment or torment or destruction. It is something that has the goal of really releasing the full potential, if you will, of who you are as a human being. <laughs> Think about it this way. Ever Now, some of you, anybody, you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody ever did drugs that had a bad trip? That had a bad trip? Either a bad trip on mushrooms, or sometimes you can even have a bad trip on marijuana, where you're just as anxious as all get out. Okay, nobody ever has. So there are people... When, one of the things, when, when, when they made marijuana legal in, uh, in Colorado, one of the first deaths related to the legalization of marijuana was a college kid from Wyoming that came down and got a hold of some marijuana and took way too much and ended up jumping off of his balcony or something and killing himself. You, you remember that? Um, and that the hospitals were talking about people coming in that were just crazed and whatever. And so why is it that some people will use a substance like that and they'll have a really great trip and other people will use a substance like that and they're ready to go jump off a building and commit suicide? Why do you think that is? I have a theory. Some of it's how you use it, but I also have a theory that it there are certain chemicals and certain times when what literally happens is you just get unzipped. So if your state of being is kind of chill and kind of peaceful and you use that drug to unzip that or open that up more, this is just my own theory, but bear with me, you become more chill. (laughs) But if you have anxiety and stuff that you have suppressed, that is unconscious, that you deal with, with all kinds of different ways, biting your nails, watching, keeping yourself distracted, watching television, whatever it is, and you take this stuff, and now all of a sudden, all that stuff amplifies inside of you and gets louder, and it's like, ugh, there's, there's all that anxiety and all that pain and all that stuff, right? And I can tell you, in 20 years of doing counseling with people and, and healing with people and walking people through issues and having degrees in psychology and counseling, that people do what they do more from a place of pain or neglect than they do from the place of they just want to be evil. It's just the truth. And if they get healed, their behaviors change. <laughs> It's just the truth. That's why Jesus, he put the whole thing in a healing paradigm. He said, he said, the, the, the well don't need a physician but the sick. I did not come to call the righteous but the sinner to repentance. Right? You see it? So what if that fire is there to burn off all that stuff that you've just been using coping mechanisms to try to handle? What if hell is sort of the opening up of all your unfinished business and all your traumas and all your things that you didn't work out, like a bad drug trip just opens all that stuff up all at once? (laughs) And you get baptized in in the fire, which really I think is God himself, because it's in the presence of the Lamb and in the presence of his angels that this process is going on.
until all you are is silver, all you are is gold. And that's where the touchstone comes in. And so all that dross, all that pain, all that suffering, all that stuff that you carry around is the dross. And who wants to take that to heaven? (laughs) Or into eternity or whatever. You get it? So what if what he's talking about is a process of purification? There's other places I could take you in the Old Testament where it talks about being burned with fire and it means to purify. But if it's talking about that process of purification where you're put in the divine incense and God is love and that incense begins to purify you and it begins to lift all of these sort of spiritual diseases off of your soul. (laughs) And then the torment is the touchstone. And that's why it's for an allotted period of time. That's why it's not everlasting. Because not everybody has to go through the same Refinings. Oh, that sounds like Catholic purgatory. Well, I'd sure as hell rather go to a Catholic purgatory that I might be purged in and get out of than go to your hell of eternal conscious torment. <laughs> and I'd sure rather believe in a God that's like this rather than a God that's like that. It just makes so much more sense to me. Let's look at this and we'll be done. First Corinthians chapter 3. And again, I'm not trying to say this is how it is because I don't really know. I don't know what's going to happen after death. But what I'm trying to do is make sense of the verses in the Bible and expose the fact that there are people that are still preaching hellfire and brimstone and scaring and tormenting people and, and, and giving them anxiety disorders and all this stuff in the name of God and, and presenting a God that is really a maniacal monster rather than the Abba of Jesus. You see it? Because the Bible doesn't teach that other stuff. I'm convinced of it. All right, I'll get off my phone. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. So right there, Paul says the fire has a purifying and saving purpose, not a punishing and destroying purpose. And he says each one is going to do it. Jesus said everyone will be salted with fire. How can you believe in a God who tells you to love your enemies to bless those that curse you, to do good to those that despitefully use you, to overcome evil with good, to not repay insult for insult, but to overcome evil with good, who says don't get into this retributive justice where you're paying back all the time, but instead bless those that curse you, do good to them, and then Paul goes on and says in Romans 13, and in doing so you will heap coals of fire (laughs) upon their head. And how can we think that God expects us to be like that and calls that being imitators of him, 
But then, man, once this life is over, if you didn't get access to the right information, he's worse than the BTK because he's going to keep you alive for all eternity. Just keep reviving you so he can just keep torturing you more. I mean, really? <laughs> I'll close with this. My son, we were having an interesting discussion, very deep theological discussion. And he's been asking me a lot of, you know, spiritual type questions. And, and he, he, he asked about people going to hell. He said, do people go to hell, daddy? And I said, well, son, I think hell is, you know, what, where a lot of people are living right now because of the way they choose to live their lives. I think hell is what a lot of people experience right now because of the way they choose to live their lives. And he says, when people go to hell, they have to smell a bad smell <laughs> for the rest of their lives. Isn't that right, daddy? <laughs> He said, when, when the devil goes to hell, he's going to have to smell a bad smell for the rest of his life, isn't he, Daddy? And I thought, probably so, son, probably so. <laughs> so anyway, thank you for listening, um, and I'll take questions. But let's end the recording if we could.